So welcome, Prahlad, in to uh, Integral Yoga Podcast. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Um, and if I can just share a few things uh, about yourself, and I'm, I know for every one thing that I, that I say, I'll probably miss a few at, at the very least. Your, your background is so rich. I'm getting older, if that's what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, but uh, so uh, a yogi, of, of course, uh, spent a lot of time with Swami Satchidananda, uh, helping him with uh, two of, I think, his most popular pieces of writing, the Living Gita and To Know Yourself. He didn't actually write them. He spoke them. Mm-hmm. And we would tape what he we tape what he said and then we'd listen to the the tapes or we'd get them typed out or something and then we'd clean them up a little bit like please close the door, we'd drop that out, you know, and put it and then we'd have a book of his teachings uh that would have been pretty much everything he's what he said. He wasn't really a writer so much as a speaker. Any takeaways from that, uh, the difference between sitting down and and writing, which you have done, uh, and just what comes about from from transcribing regular speech and putting it into writing? What What is the different result of those two things? Well, uh, when we transcribe things that he said... It's just his natural conversation. And when we write, we can stop and think a little bit ahead of time and edit what we've written. As a writer, I have, sometimes I'll, I'll write things without worrying about my grammar or the sequential enough or the details. And if anything comes out good, I go back to it and keep it and edit out some of the junk. So you can edit your writings. And I guess we could edit the the transcriptions, but not much. We just get rid of a few things like, uh, could you close the door over there? We don't need that in the transcription, you know. Right. Is there a, a richness that comes about from transcribing uh, just someone speaking in itself? To me, it seems two different processes. One is just kind of what what happens in the present moment, kind of like what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. It's just one take. The other one is, okay, reflecting and editing and a process of over a long period of time. You mean looking at your writings, looking at writings that you've done versus uh, transcribing what people are saying, that's what right. you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there are different art forms now that you mention it. Right. It, it's interesting to me because, you know, you would perhaps think that there will be a higher quality that comes from, you know, having many takes, right? Working on a piece for a long time and having, you know, numerous editions, and perhaps that's true. You mean writing pieces? Writing pieces, uh-huh. yeah. Um, uh, you, I guess music would be a similar example, the difference between, um, you know, maybe a, a studio piece where, you, you know, you grab different parts and put them together and multiple takes and all of that versus a live performance when you just have, you know, one shot at it. Right, right. No real question there, but just a thought. Well, when I was working on a book, yeah, and uh, I could go back and review what I've done and, oh, this should be clarified. This needs a little clarification, and we don't need that. So I can make it more effective by editing and reviewing. Uh, so that works pretty good with writing. Now it's just people just speaking, you keep the best stuff you can. Mm. You see what comes out and use what works, you know. Mm. So from your life experience yeah, at this point, what do you feel matters to you? Well, over the years, as I've been learning about life, and particularly under the guidance of the late Swami Satchidananda, who was 
such a wonderful and illumined, inspiring presence. I've come to appreciate the moments that I can be before a sacred presence. And uh, his teachings have given me ways of developing those moments. And uh, that has led me to an intention and now these my later years to somehow be an instrument of that sacred presence. Mm. And that's my game plan at this point in my life. Mm. To be an instrument of God and bring that presence to others, God willing, that will be transformative. Like yoga teachers, they pass on this beautiful art and science that lets people's lives be transformed into magnificent service while on this rough, tough planet. And uh, it's one of the things I appreciate of Gurudev's teachings. He gave us a way to do something wonderful while we're in these bodies. So how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Well, you put the yoga teachings into your life little by little so you can uh, observe yourself in the midst of occasional reactions, automatic reactions, and catch yourself, wait a minute, I don't want to always flip into these automatic reactions. I want to still be a free person, not go into automatic reactions. That's one way of being able to observe yourself, be a witness. And then you can dedicate your actions. Like you can dedicate the energy and the food that you eat for the benefit of everyone, including yourself. So one way to do that is by dedication. You can dedicate your actions and you can witness your mind and witness it doing its thought forms. Sometimes when you catch your mind doing all this crazy stuff, if you just step back and watch it and don't shake your finger at it, just, huh, look what my mind's, look at all my thoughts now. Just by doing that and stepping back, you disempower that wild thoughts bouncing around. They lose their juice. That's one of the practices, a good yoga practice called witnessing. It's a type of meditation practice. Of course, one meditation practice is make the mind one-pointed until you become one with what you're focused on. That's a wonderful approach. But another one is to step back and watch everything with neutrality, without judging, and see what's going on in the world and in the room, even right now, as we were to step up and look down at ourselves here. Huh, here we are sitting here doing this without judging it, that's sort of, we go to the place of the knower. There's a knower in us each, which even knows, like someone asks you, how'd you sleep last night? You say, oh, I slept pretty good, thank you. How do you know that? Because the knower doesn't sleep. There's a part of you that knows. It doesn't judge, it just knows. And that's our higher consciousness. And with these yoga practices and our spiritual work, we get to identify more and more often with the knower, with that illumined consciousness that we each have as our inheritance. And the job here, while we're in these bodies and minds, is to get into that illumined consciousness more and more of the time so we can be joyful and 
pass on joy and love to others. I like to do that not because I'm a Boy Scout, just because it makes me peaceful and happy to be able to make other people uplifted. In fact, my guru gave me the name Prahaladan, and that means uh, on one level, he's named in the Bhagavad Gita as Prince of Devotion. So he saw I had some devotion in my background and he wanted me to bring it forward because I'd been working as a time correspondent, as a Navy SEAL, and I didn't ever show my devotion, for goodness sake. But my guru saw that in me and gave me a name that had a lot of devotion in it so I could bring my devotion forward because it's an enriching pathway for me. But another meaning of Prahladin is someone who cheers you up. So I have to go into a supermarket and some little old lady's behind the counter and she's exhausted, it's the end of the day. I say, how are you doing? She says, I'm, I, I don't want to tell you. I say, well, you're looking good. And she starts smiling and laughing. It's easy to cheer people up, you know? So that's the game I play. I'm not trying to heal the whole world, just six feet around me, <laughs> you know? I want to just leave a nice vibe if I can while I'm here in this body and mind for a little bit longer. Hmm. <laughs> what are some signs for you that you, to know I'm in this illumined state? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I'll tell you a story. When my guru asked me to rewrite the verses of the Bhagavad Gita, the background was that's a sacred yoga text that all yoga pathways respect the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God. And he quoted from it often. So uh, he asked me, so the, the, the ashram team asked me to edit his commentaries because he would speak them and we'd tape them and everything, edit his commentaries. And when we finished the editing of the commentaries, I went and said, they're ready now, but we need the verses of the Bhagavad Gita, the slokas, are all written in this ancient old English, verily, verily, the oversoul. So I said, Gurudev, please pick another translation that we can use to go with the, your commentaries. He said, well, Prahaladin, you write one. I said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> he said, I'll be with you, don't worry, I'll be with you. Same thing happened to Moses. Moses saw a burning bush in the, in, the, in the scriptures. He sees this burning bush and he goes over and he hears a voice saying to him like, uh, I want you to go back and, and free all the people and, and, and get them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He said, wait, 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 how can I do that? God said, I'll be with you, I'll be with you and I'll send your brother to help too. So I felt the same way. Like well, He said, I want you to rewrite all the verses in the Bhagavad Gita. And I said, wait, wait, wait. He said, I'll be with you. So I worked on it over a couple of years. And one time he called me and said, how's the Gita coming along? I said, pretty good, good. I said, yes, the operation will be a success, uh, 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 but the patient will be dead. Yes, yes, I'll get it in. I'll get it in right away. <laughs> so I forget what we were talking about. It says, oh, 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 the, the illumined space. So in studying the Bhagavad Gita, there's a verse in the beginning of it where, it's, where you say certain prayer before you open the scripture because you get into the scripture more deeply if you approach it respectfully. All the ancient scriptures have that. There's a certain set of worshipful lines you say before you go into the scripture. Not that you can't get into a scripture without that, but if you put the little worshipful stuff first, you know, that opens you up to get the, the depth from the scripture. And that first lines in the Bhagavad Gita, which says, oh, aren't you know who, in the Bhagavad Gita for 18 chapters and wrote it and passes on these teachings that gives us the sacred nectar of oneness. The Bhagavad Gita gives you the sacred nectar of oneness. So I would say that sometimes before I'd be translating it and study it. I was working one night in Laurel, Maryland, rewriting the slokas because I had a job up here. Even though I was living at the ashram in Yogaville in Virginia, I would come up for, for middle of the week and I'd be working on this business up there in Maryland and at night I'd go, I went to the library, just the local library, just for, for a change. 
and I was working on them, meditating and concentrating on these verses and trying to put them in modern English and looking at the different translations and everything like that. And finally, I got them. I was going, ah, I finished. And I went, I went out of the library and I went to a little mall nearby, a, sh- a shopping mall, an open mall. I parked my car and I went in and saw a movie called uh, The Tin Man with Danny DeVito. It was a lot of fun. I just saw the movie. And when I came out of the movie... I went over to put my key into my car door, and at that moment, everything became one. My key, my hand, the car door, the street, the sun, the, the city of Laurel down below, everything was in a state of oneness. It was beautiful. I got in the car and I drove for 20 minutes home and everything, and I was just in a state of oneness the entire time. When I got back to the ashram, I told everybody, you've got to see this movie. <laughs> I forgot that I'd been studying the Bhagavad Gita for a, an hour and, uh, and I was so focused on it, I went into this state of oneness. Like it says, you, you get the nectar of oneness, which was a lesson to me because you don't have to be a great sage to have that happen to you. You can go into that state of oneness and that's in a moment of illumination. And so when you get to that stage, then you get familiar with it when it kicks in once in a while. For example, I was in a hot tub outside in the woods during the fall and the leaves were falling so beautifully down into the water and it was so beautiful and there's a place in the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna asks Krishna who the hero of the Bhagavad Gita Arjuna is the seeker and Krishna represents God he says Krishna what are your representations in the world and Krishna says everything's my my manifestation in the world but some places it's easier to see me and he names a whole bunch of things in chapter 15 or uh, yeah, I think it's 15. He names a whole bunch of things where it's easier to feel God's presence. And one of the places he says, well, you're in the presence of magnificent beauty beyond, beyond description, an ineffable beauty. That's my presence. So I was watching these leaves flowing out of the, the maplewood trees and down into the, around my shoulders and down into the water in the hot tub I was sitting in. And I thought, wow, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. Oh, this is what it says in the Gita. This is so beautiful, this must be God's presence. And I get an insight, hey, this is you. It's not you looking at the beauty, you are the beauty. Mm. And I realized we go into that state sometimes where we blend in. We blend in with that stuff. Swami Satchidananda told a story once about the ant in the sugar hill. I think it's in the book to know yourself. This little ant was going through the woods and she came across all these big sugar hills. And she thought, oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is Valhalla. This is what I've been looking for all my life. This is great. I've finally made it. I'm here. And she heard a little voice say, oh, my beautiful ant, if you want to, you can blend in and be the oneness and be the sugar hill. She says, oh, no, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. I just want to be the ant in the sugar hill. And the voice said, okay, my dear little ant, you can be the ant in the sugar hill. And she would be the ant in the sugar hill and be devotee and the beloved, beloved and devotee. Every once in a while, she'd blend in and become the sugar hill. Then she'd come out and be the ant in the sugar hill. And that's for us, too. Sometimes it's seeker and beloved, we're the aspirant, the spiritual aspirant, and the divine is the beloved. And we're in a dance of devotion between the seeker and the beloved. And every once in a while we blend in and we become that. And there's no I thou at that moment. There's no one, when I was outside the car and I was having that state of oneness, I, there was nothing, there was no one to thank. I couldn't say hallelujah, I didn't even know, there was no other, there was just the oneness. And then when you come out of the oneness, you can be thankful. Oh, thank you for that experience so much. What can I do to make that happen again? <laughs> Which is an ongoing prayer. <laughs> what can I do to feel your presence more and more of the time and walk around in that presence and share that if I can? That's the game. That's the game. See, we're here while we got these bodies and minds. We're here to grow. Gurudev calls this a training planet. It's got rough, it's got all the beauty and love and it's got the cruelty and hurt all on the same planet. It's a rough planet. And our job, while we got these minds and bodies, 
is to pass on some good stuff. What good stuff? We've each been given some good stuff. You know the gifts, some of the gifts you've been given. You know you've been given some gifts. Take those gifts and pass them on a little by little to other people, one way or another, even if you're not great at it yet. Once, my guru was invited to give a talk to cancer patients and cancer healers. And I got invited to sit in. I was neither a cancer patient nor a cancer healer. And I went to such an illumined state during his talk. At the end of the talk, I went up to him afterwards. I said, Guru, Guru, I see now how it works. I see how it works. You hit this consciousness and you don't have to do anything else. You just lie back at it. He says, no, Prahladin. You, you choose. I said, no, no, Gurudev, I see now. We hit this awareness, this high awareness, and we don't have to do anything. We just blend in. He says, no, Prahladin, you choose. I'm embarrassed to tell you what I told him, what I said next. I said, no, Gurudev, you just lie back in this <laughs> stuff. He said, no, Prahladin, you choose. So I finally shut my mouth, and I went out, and I thought what he was saying. I thought about it for a few weeks. I was coming out of a supermarket one afternoon, and I got it. While we've got these bodies and minds, there's something for us to choose to do. What is it you choose to do? You think of something that makes your heart happy, that calls you, and you choose that, and you share it. Now, if you make money at it, great. But if you don't make money at it, still do it. If it's stringing tennis rackets or making apple pie or raking the yard or teaching kids to swim, whatever it is that touches your heart and moves you, you take that thing, that it, and you make sure you do it at least a little bit and you pass on that gift to others and that's what we do while we got these bodies and minds and we're on this crazy planet. We take some of the gifts we've been given and we pass them on to others and that's what we're here for. And we're growing, too, because it's a rough planet and uh, a training planet. So there's all scrubbing and rubbing here as we're getting polished. I don't know what happens in the next incarnation. I don't know if we have to come back here or not. We go to a better planet. I don't know. But I'll send you a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> we never know what's going to happen. I might be sending you the postcard. Okay, deal. It's a deal. Mm. Have a wonderful time. Wish you were here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel are some obstacles that prevent us from sharing in that way? What prevents us from making that choice, as Kubernetes said? Well, we have all these old habits of mind. Old habits of mind. Some scars, I think they call them. And... Uh, Like, for example, someone's a little rude to you in a drugstore behind the counter because she's in a bad mood about what happened at home this morning. And so we get a little, hey, how dare she talk to me like that? You know? We get a little, we go to an automatic reaction. Understandable but not particularly useful for our minds and our hearts to have our mind disturbed. The whole goal, the high goal for all of us is to have peace of mind. That's another name for God is peace of mind. We want to have peace of mind wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And if we go into automatic reaction patterns, we lose our peace of mind. So with practice, we can see an automatic reaction and sidestep it. Or we can catch it when it's happening and sidestep it. And eventually it'll stop bouncing in right away and you'll have that clear mind and that peaceful mind instead of going to an automatic reaction. That's one example of dealing with obstacles. Say you want to learn to meditate and you're sitting down to meditate and you're quieting the mind and now you're trying to keep your mind focused and all these other thoughts come in. Hey, I'm trying to meditate. Stop thinking other thoughts. That's an obstacle. Then you step back and witness. Ha, huh, look at my mind doing all that stuff. So there's obstacles that come along. 
old patterns of mine, old bugaboos, old uh, feuds, old someone hurt your feelings years ago and you're still pissed off, you know? Drop all that stuff and be a peaceful man again and keep your peace and let go of that other stuff. It takes practice, but it can be done. If you can identify the obstacle, Gurudev used to say, you're three quarters healed. If you see something that's not been useful to you, and you've been doing it for a while, if you can spot it, you've, the very fact that you've spotted it, you've three quarters healed. That means the next time it comes, you'll catch it before it runs away with you. You'll, it takes a few times, and then when it starts to come up again, you can sidestep it right away. You can even brush it aside, because you know about it. It's the old patterns of thought that we don't know about that run us around and don't serve us that we gotta catch. So to become aware. Right on, right on. We wanna develop awareness, meditation, yoga practices, breathing practices, prayer, devotion, offerings, dedication, all that helps us to clean our slate and be pure instruments of light while we're in this planet growing and evolving. And you were speaking about before, you know, becoming the observer. You know, so when, when we're not the observer, when we're kind of stuck in the separate our, self. Our normal day-to-day -day life, we're not the observer. Right. <laughs> uh, we're a busy, active players on the planet and then doing all our stuff. That's not being aware. Or maybe we're more aware of external factors than what's happening internal, right? And, and also, I, I guess the question is, do we need to prioritize more to be focused on the internal? Because that's more of an intimate relationship that we can control as opposed to all these external factors that perhaps distract us from more of what I can control if I become aware of myself and my patterns and what you're saying, then I can do that work and I can spend my days doing that work as opposed to being very concerned and very aware of what's going on outside of me. But uh, just um, realistically, I, I don't have control over those things or really changing much of them. Well, of course, there's our day-to-day -day life from getting up out of bed in the morning and brushing our teeth and getting something to eat and going on to all the things on our list, our to-do list and everything. And that's normal and human. And then there's that state of awareness or the knower that's in us all the time, but we may not be conscious of it a lot of the time. And you're right. If we could be more conscious of the awareness, we would be able to rest back in that state of awareness even while we're doing the other things all through the day. And that can be developed with practice and with intentionality. Uh, so because the awareness is there, we each have awareness right now. We may not be looking through that window at the moment, but just by thinking about, ah, I do have awareness. There's a knower in me, and it's watching what's happening right now. Automatically, you're shifting to that channel, that simple thought form and ah, remembrance. And you can still uh, make your bed or make your phone calls or go to your computer, but you can still be aware while you're doing it. And that gives you a certain mastery and peace even while you're doing the daily stuff of life. And we can develop that technology to go to the awareness state, because it's right there all the time. It's not like we have to go far away to be aware. We just gotta remember, there's a knower in us right now, an awareness right this moment. And we can, just by thinking about that, we can go to that state. And it gives us a freedom from the crazy thought forms that are going on some of which are nice thought forms and some aren't particularly useful. You spoke earlier about kind of moving between the planes, going to that, that space of awareness, uh, oneness. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and then going back into day-to-day lives, our habitual patterns. Duality. We go duality. from, go from awareness, we go from oneness to duality, and duality to oneness. That's the dance that we have while we're in these bodies. That's the dance, and my question is, is the dance in- inevitable? Um, because I personally feel very often that you know our world we're living in is polarized, and the issue with the polarization is if it's not grounded in reality, if, if it's inevitable to always move back and forth, and therefore the goal can be instead, because uh, is it important to, to create a reasonable goal? So is it unreasonable to think I can be in that state of awareness, uh, illumination all the time, as opposed to my goal is, is just to be there more often? Well, you start with more often. <laughs> you start with more often, and then after you find yourself getting into that state a little more often, you can see what voices are guiding you to even more so. You know, we want to walk around and be able to do the dance of duality effectively, beautifully, and with cheer in the midst of tasting the oneness as much as possible simultaneously. I can't say I've mastered that. that, but I think we can. And uh, this planet, with the polarities and all the craziness, in the midst of all the beauty, like Guru used to say, there's people on this planet who their evolution is they're just getting off all fours. There are others who are practically angelic. So the ones getting off all fours are thinking, me, 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 me. That's normal when you're just getting off all fours. And the ones who've developed themselves a lot are thinking, we, we, we. And all living on the same geography, which makes this quite a mixed bag here. Who the people were going to schools and shoot little kids? That's ignorance. But that's very low evolution. Then there's others who have given their whole lives for the benefit of humanity. That's high evolution. All people living on the same planet. It's crazy. It's a mystery. All I can do at this point is surrender to the mystery and be delighted to have moments of clarity and oneness. And I hope to learn a little more. When I was a young guy, 17, I thought I knew everything. Now I don't know diddly squat. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. When you get older, I warn you. <laughs> mm. Do you have any techniques for uh, shifting anger into compassion? Yes. You don't have to shift anger to compassion right away. You want to shift anger from running you to watching it. Ha! Huh. Look at my mind. It's angry, angry, angry. That's not to say it isn't appropriate to have a, a righteous outrage and injustices and unkindnesses. That's appropriate. A certain type of outrage is appropriate. But mo- mostly, personal anger is of no service to us or to anyone else. So by practicing watching, observing, witnessing, taking it on. I don't mean like you gotta sit for an hour while I do that, but remember during the day to witness, hey, there's my awareness. I'm gonna look at things from the window of my awareness, from the window of me being the knower. We can do that once in a while, often through the day. By getting in that habit, when you catch your mind or see your mind being angry, and you may be justified, you know? I'm justified to be angry, yeah, but is that good for you? How you're peace of you feeling peaceful and happy? No, well, go back and witness. Witness the anger, huh? Look at my mind being angry. Just by doing that, you disempower the anger. There might be still some, but not. It's not running things anymore because you're witnessing it. That's a technology for transforming anger into not running your life, not running your mind. And once you've done that, that opens the door for anything else you want to do including compassion. You don't have to transform anger to compassion. You want to transform anger from running you to anger being witnessed, 
to what doesn't run you. And you have freedom again to think what you think and use thought forms you want to choose. Always good to have some thought forms that you know will be good for your mind. Pratipaksabhavana, I think they call it. Replacing one thought form with another. It's a yoga wisdom practice. For example, when I read in the newspaper about some children being maligned or hurt or people being tortured, it so, it so digs into my throat and chest with such yuckiness that I quickly think of my guru's feet and I replace that thought form that, thought form that was bothering me with the thought form that's pleasing for me. I say my guru's feet because I'm devoted to the teacher and I touched his feet over the years so it has a way of giving me a peacefulness. You don't have to pick a guru's feet. You can look, you can think about a beautiful mountain or a beautiful ocean or whatever thought forms make you feel good. But have those thought forms ready. Don't try and think of thought forms while you're in the midst of yucky thinking. Instead, have a plan already Like when you go home today, think of a few things that really you love to see. A rainbow, a beautiful mountain, trees in the forest, a beautiful woman you love. Whatever whatever image is so uplifting for you and have that in your back pocket at all times. And when you catch your mind doing yucky thoughts or hurt like when I read about children being maligned, and I'm so, I'm so turned inside out, I quickly think of a thought form that is beautiful and I replace that the former thought form with the one I'm choosing. Choose the thought forms you want to put in place and use those to replace the other thought forms. You can do that. That allows you to color your mind the way you want it to be colored because you color your mind with your thought forms. And if you have beautiful thought forms, you make your mind beautiful. And when you make your mind beautiful, you walk around in a beautiful world because the world is a projection of your mind, the world you walk around in, your experiences. So you want to color your thought forms so you can be with beautiful thought forms so you color your mind with beautiful colors and then you walk around in a beautiful world. It's really amazing and it works. How about music, coloring your, your thought forms with music, even thinking about music? And I, and I want to ask you as a musician, you know, what's your relationship with, with music? <clears throat> well, music is another one of the art forms that, are, that one can use to color one's mind in a beautiful way. If there's certain music you love that lifts you up, if you want to use that as a technology to replace some stuff that's not going so good in your mind, you can do so. Even sing the song or hum it or something or remember it. I myself, I have a tenor guitar I like to play and a harmonica. And whenever I'm feeling a little down or yucky, I can pick it up and play some songs I know and sing along and it puts me in a nice space. Music works for sure. And if people like to paint, for them, painting does good, you know? Mm. And sculpture, any of the art forms that you feel called to or you appreciate, you can draw on them at times that you want to replace some thought forms with a new one that's uplifting. Mm. Thank you, if you say at the time of the full moon, the mind is very open. So you want to be careful to have really good thought forms around the full moon days. So think of things you love and don't let your mind go to yucky places during a full moon, like the lunatics. That's what they do. They have problems because the mind gets too strong uh, and with negative thoughts. But put beautiful thoughts out there during full moons. In fact, any day, but full moons particularly. Is there a, a fine line between using beautiful thoughts and also suppressing what you don't want to give attention to? Well... The question is, how do you suppress what you don't want to give attention to? You need a technology to suppress the things you don't want to give attention to. One of the technologies is to repeat a mantra, do some deep breathing practices, choose a thought form that's very uplifting for you. Those are technologies you can draw on 
in order to suppress. You don't just suppress and bite your lip. It doesn't suppress that way. You've got to have a practice of kind, an activity of some kind, a mental activity of some kind, or a breathing practice, or a few sun salutations, or a music that you love. Is this also the the devotional path of bhakti yoga, where when challenging things come across our vision, mm-hmm. to give it up to God and say, I'm limited in what I know and what I can understand, why these things you know happen in the world, um, and then perhaps still still have faith that however it's unfolding. There's a reason for it. That's beautiful. And that is uh, part of the, devo- the richness of the bhakti yoga pathway, which is used as devotion to uplift and enrich us. Not everyone has the, the temperament of a bhakti yogi, though, of a devotional yogi. There are some people that are intellectual and use the mind to witness the mind. Huh. Look, uh, I'm not this body. The body goes, I'm still here. I'm not even this mind. I'm still here. So there's a whole pathway that doesn't draw on devotion as strongly as other pathways. It's all part of yoga. A union, a yoking. A yoke. Yoga is yoking the finite to the infinite. Yoga actually translates yoking the finite to the infinite. And that's what we're doing, yoking finite consciousness to the infinite. And bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, is one of the pathways that works if you have an emotional temperament. Bhakti is wonderful for you. But if you are by nature and intellectually even stronger than your devotion, then you'll use other methods than the bhakti yogi would use, the devotional yogi. And so, yes, what you're talking about is an excellent approach for a bhakti yogi. But don't they also perhaps... um play off of one another because through the intellectual yana yoga approach Mm -hmm. you could see examples where perhaps something bad had to happen in order to open up a learning and then many more good things to to happen and you look at many examples of this and you said okay in the present moment it seemed like it was a terrible event that that occurred but now afterwards you can see you know if you look back in history that's why it's so interesting. You could see, oh, well, maybe they learned a lesson from those things, uh, which created an evolution. And you see a number of examples to that, and then you give it up at that point. Through the intellectual path, you end up giving it up and say, it's too much for my limited human capabilities to understand what should be unfolding. Therefore, Therefore, I have faith. Yeah, you can surrender yeah. uh, to the mystery and take refuge in your faith. But that's still a little bit in the bhakti realm hmm. of taking rep- refuge in your faith. Uh, like, you know, since you were a little boy, you know, God has pretty much taken care of you. So you've got that faith even when things are challenging these days. That's beautiful. But the intellectual approach is a little different. You still have faith, but it's not a surrendering to faith. It's like finding the oneness or the clarity by using your thought forms and stepping stones to a place beyond mental worrying and concerns. There's different approaches. Even selfless service, karma yoga, that's another way people make their minds peaceful. Something's bothering you like crazy, go out and serve somebody. Go help somebody who needs a little hand. Quickly run over and help that lady with her garden or something, you know? That's another approach that'll calm your mind and get you into a peaceful place when the mind's disturbed. Selfless service, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, yana yoga, then uh, using a mantra, beautiful mantra, Om Shanti, Om Shanti, Om Shanti. Speaking of Om Shanti, hmm. there's an Om that we often do in yoga 
we do oh we had us do at the beginning of this session om you know and the 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 m sound in the om at the end om that's the real essence of the om it's the humming om that's what you want to that that's the that's the sound of the universe that's pure being that's pure consciousness it's the m part of the om so when you do the om make sure you do the m Om, and if you want to try another trick, you can do Om, then make sure you close your teeth. Om, and you'll hear it up in the top of the skull. And you want to go even beyond it, you can do Om, close your ears, and you can hear the hum up in the, the crown there area. And that hum is the essence of the Om and is the sound of, the, of being and pure being and consciousness in the whole cosmos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, hmm, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I think that, that humming really does something. Yes, it does. For us, I've really come around to, it. it, it it's, it's cleansing yes, is the it's word. That, it is, it takes you to your, your true self. Yeah. Hmm. So when you're guiding people with ohms, make sure they do the M part more than anything else. Mm, you can have them close their teeth, too, because mm, they can really hear it up there. Mm. <laughs> Any reflections to share from your experience as a Navy SEAL? Well, uh, I went through training with about 130 people, and by the end of the training, Six months later, we were down to 35, and nobody was kicked out. But they would whisper to our ears while we're crawling through the sand and there's dynamite blowing all around us and things are flying everywhere which way. They'd say, you don't have to keep crawling here in the mud. We'll get you good duty in Southern California, maybe even send you to Paris. We'll get you out of here. You don't have to stay here and do that. And little by little, people dropped out. So by the last few weeks, some of us looked at each other and we said, what are we here for? Why are we doing this? And they say, well, we just said we would, so we're doing it because we said we would. <laughs> and you knew by the end of the training that everybody that you're on the team with, you can depend on with your life, no matter what. And they said, when you go out with your swim buddy, we always put in pairs, dead or alive, don't come back without your swim buddy. You know? And, uh, and then... Uh, we would set noble intentions and go for them. And we had a teaching like, uh, have fun on your missions, even outrageous, but don't be inadvertently harmful to anybody. Mm. And uh, uh, so there was a camaraderie that was uh, very heartful and uplifting and uh, I lost a couple of those buddies over the years because of stuff that was going on in the world, and, you know. And I remember them with all heartfulness. And uh, I learned things like, uh, if you have an intention, go for it, and don't let anything dissuade you. Things like that. You got me thinking. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. And how about your experience as a speechwriter for Robert Kennedy? Uh-huh. Well, he didn't need a speechwriter. He was a good speaker. But sometimes I do some research for him, so when he's going to go to a new town, I could say, look, here's how they voted for John Kennedy and here's what's going on in the town now and here's what some of the issues are in the town now. So he'd have that in front of him before he'd talk so he would know exactly what the people were dealing with and stuff. And uh, I remember he said once, because uh, he was sort of drafted to run for president after his brother was killed and, and he sort of accepted reluctantly and every day the news people were chasing him or trying to get him to talk about this, that, and the other. And he turned to us one time, a few of us, he said, 
I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> he was right. But uh, it knocked me off the train I was on when he was killed. I admired where he was doing with his life, what he was trying to do. All the African Americans and all the Mexican Americans were on his train, and we were going to we were going to change the heal the cities and stop the war in Vietnam. We were in touch with the Viet Cong. We were doing all sorts of things we were going to do for the good of this country, for the good of the world. And when he was killed, well, frankly, a few months before he was killed, I was a Time correspondent, and I was walking next to Martin Luther King when he came to town to lead a, a march. And everybody, when you were with Martin Luther King, man, whatever he says, you just can't help but love him. Then he was killed. Then Bobby Kennedy was killed. I gave up on my country. I dropped out and wandered off and didn't read a newspaper or a magazine for a long time. And I met a yoga teacher down in Mexico and he started teaching me yoga. And uh, I realized, huh, this is good stuff. I better learn a little more about this stuff. And that's what I did. And that helped me get back to earth again and find my path. And my teacher told me, Prahlad, you pass the word. So I give it a go. And what's the word? <laughs> the word is the Dharma, the eternal wisdom that's spoken in many languages, in many metaphors, in many traditions. It's the teachings that enlighten you, that teach you how to be a happy and peaceful person and serviceful in the world. That's the word. That's the teachings. That's what the scriptures are all about. And we want to pass on that word in any way we can, in our own language, in a way that people can hear it. And it will transform their lives. My goal is to, to pass the word in such a way when not only will people hear it, but they'll take it on and it'll change the way they do in their lives and make them happier and more fulfilled. Do you feel that your whole life now is an act of service? Well, I wouldn't put it quite that nobly. Uh, that's my whole intention. Sometimes when I get up and brush my teeth, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think I'm doing such an act of service but it's good for my body. <laughs> Which allows you to serve. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do want to... My goal is to be an instrument of that mysterious oneness and pass on something about it one way or another while I'm st still around here. After... The Bhagavad Gita came out in modern English. My teacher told me to do the same thing with the Torah. Mm. And he had me rewrite the Torah for people of all backgrounds, gender neutral, present tense, so that people can draw on that scripture also and find pathways to awakening. The scriptures are pathways to awakening. And they're in different metaphors, depending on which culture they come from. But they're all talking about becoming illumined and being in the sacred presence, and being a loving service. That's the game, from what I can tell. The ecumenical approach, seeing that in all the different religions, you know, maybe pointing at the same thing. Truth is one, paths are many. Right. Um, Why is it, I think for many people, the association with religion, when they think about even using a religion as a tool, as you've just said, uh, for themselves, there's this hesitancy, maybe, or a distaste, because from their experience, it has not been this all-inclusive type of, of thing. It's been, no, this is the one. It's been the opposite of truth is one, paths are many. It's been, this is the one, and if you don't follow this one, then you're wrong. Uh, why is it so foundational to 
be accepting of all paths while we engage the one that feels right to us. Well, it's not unusual for those of us when we're young to be raised in a family with certain attitudes. Uh, and either to get pick up those attitudes, like our way is the only way, or drop out of the whole thing because it's not to your taste anymore and don't want anything to do with any of it. But then as we mature over the years, we begin to see a little more, a little more, a little more of other things, and we begin to open a door again sometimes into devotional considerations and scriptural investigations. I don't know if I'm addressing your question, but uh, it's not unusual for people to drop out of religious interests for a number of years, and then as they begin to mature, have experiences that make them want to investigate it again a little bit. And yes, as my teacher used to say, yes, truth is one, paths are many, but, uh, but dig deep on one of the traditions so you can really get the living waters, because if you keep hopping from place to place, you won't go deep enough. But don't think your way is the only way. There's all different pathways to that illumined consciousness, which is beyond name and which is beyond religion, which is beyond name. I once asked my guru, why do we care about the names of God so much? Why don't we just go right to God? He said, you can't go right to God. God's beyond name and form. God's even beyond your mind and thoughts. So you can use the names of God as doorways to get to that place which is beyond name and form. And there's different names, everything from Adonai to Krishna and Rama to Allah to Jesus to Mary. They're all gateways into that places beyond name and form. Religions are ladders that take you to a place beyond name and form where you experience the oneness. You can kick over the ladder at that point. You don't need it. Or you can pass it to somebody, hey, this is a good ladder. Give it a try. You know? they ladders to get you to a high place. And if people are caught in the narrow-mindedness that often happens at the lower levels, like our way is the only way, nobody out here, everybody else is going to hell, you know that's bullshit because you're too awake. But people aren't there yet. Not everybody's there. Mm. So, But if you evolve, you'll go beyond that narrow-mindedness. You can still use the ladder, that feels, the jacket that feels good on your back. And then you go beyond the jacket. You're beyond name and beyond any one particular tradition, even beyond the sacred names. I think maybe uh, one frustration a little bit that's common is that those that are my way is the right way for some reason seem to be the loudest. <laughs> I don't know why. Good question, good question. Well, we're challenged to sidestep that stuff and uh, find a peaceful pathway for ourselves, each of us. And the people that are shouting from a narrow-minded place, that's the level of evolution they've come to. And some of them, with their heartful devotion to whom they worship, will that higher consciousness will take them beyond their narrow-mindedness. A certain percentage of them will evolve beyond the narrow-mindedness because of their true devotion. And so this book, which is new, yes, but Song of the Torah, yeah. would you say that the goal of it is to uh, kind of make the ladder of the Torah more accessible? For sure. Yeah. I've even woven teachings from the Bhagavad Gita throughout this whole thing. Hmm. And uh, it's put in a language that I try to be in keeping with the scripture itself but to put it in in a modern language, like uh, it says, uh, don't burn fires on the Sabbath. I've written, a, don't get into arguments on the Sabbath. Mm. You see, I touch it up a little bit to, so it talks our language today, you know. <laughs> and when they say, you know, uh, I am the God of your father, I'm the God of your fathers and mothers, mm. you know. I just, 
made it broader, but I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to. That was my calling. I discovered I'm a scribe. I had no idea. Mm. <laughs> Does it feel good to discover that? Uh, it's humbling. <laughs> it's humbling. I thought it was something so distant, but uh, yeah, it feels good to know I have a, a little calling of that nature. Mm. But I want to be. Uh, I just want to be a useful guy in the world. And I want to be cheerful and happy, too. And uh, always nice to meet a cute girl. <laughs> Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Prahladin, thank you so much. I really appreciate this time with you. Thank you for the honor of uh, being able to share some of this stuff.